Programming Throwdown, episode 144, Kotlin Coroutines with Marcin Mascala. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. This is a super awesome episode. Actually, it's been a while since we did a language on the show, despite the fact that that is our tagline. Um, we've covered a ton of languages. We definitely want to go back and do, uh, for example, C++. That episode is something like 12 years old now. <laughs> but uh, um but we've uh, been on a really long journey talking about you know, user experience, talking about, we talked about trees, tree data structures, a whole bunch of stuff. I'm really excited to come back to languages. And for that, we have Marcin Moskawa here, who literally wrote the book on Kotlin. He's the author of a variety of Kotlin books, including um, you know, Effective Kotlin and Kotlin Coroutines, Android Development with Kotlin. And uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show, Marcin. So thanks for coming. Thanks for having me here. Cool. So um, you know, we definitely want to get into Kotlin and what our coroutines, all of that. But let's start with a bit of background. You know, what um, kind of what's your path, and what kind of got you to the point where you are, you know, writing these books and you're, you know, really diving headfirst into Kotlin, you know, every day. What, what kind of uh, led you to that? I mean, my journey with Kotlin itself has started with frustrations from Java. I, I like to talk about it uh, um, a few years ago because I've built a, a, a huge amount of frustration back then and uh, uh, Kotlin helped me uh, release it. Now I barely <laughs> uh, remember that because uh, I'm using Kotlin for over seven years, I believe. And uh, I nearly forgot Java. Uh, I, I'm still using um, a variety of different languages for different purposes, but Java is uh, one uh, of the languages I'm, I'm trying to forget about. <laughs> okay, so so what made you write all that Java in the first place? So you did you go the college route, or did you go straight into into industry from high school, or how did that play out? Oh, that's mixed a lot. So I I was very into the uh, college life. I actually was doing uh, two uh, faculties, so um, two different courses on, on university, having internships on both of them. But uh, then I, uh, I just have this uh, life-changing moment when I decided to go to the Erasmus. That, that's the program where, where I can go to the other, other country, live there. I spent half a year in Rome and I decided that I just need to get independent and uh, start uh, earning my own money and, 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 and live in my own way. So after coming back, um, I started working. What, what was quite crazy, uh, having two uh, faculties and, and also a job. And it was what wasn't full-time initially, but it was enough to survive from. Um, in, in the meantime, I was uh, working as a, a developer. Uh, I finished uh, those uh, two uh, degrees. Uh, and so my, my career mixed both of those uh, paths. What were your degrees? Were your degrees technical or, or, or was it something else? One, one was computer science. Another, another one is closer to telecommunication. Ah, okay, cool. Nevertheless, the story with Kotlin has started for me when I worked as, a, as an Android developer. And uh, I was one of the early adapters of, of Kotlin. And uh, back then, the community was 
you know, I mean, community is still very positive, but it's uh, absolutely uncomparable uh, what, what was then and what is what is now. You know, our community grows so much that um, grew so much that no one. I mean, you, you cannot know all those people. There are there are literally millions of people using Kotlin. Um, back then, it was a very small hipster community <laughs> where we all were passionate and uh, we were all supporting each other and uh, it was uh, it was so so fun and uh, i just wanted to give as much as i as i could uh, and i was writing about kotlin and, and speaking about kotlin and uh, I, I was uh, truly uh, passionate about uh, promoting it um, i still am in uh, teaching uh, kotlin and teaching programming in general but you know that's uh, that's not the same. Yeah, I was uh, I did a lot of hiking yesterday, and so for some reason, metaphor kind of comes to mind. Where you know, if you're if you're hiking this trail that's really common, maybe it's paved or something like that, then you can really hike it by yourself. But if you start going out in the wilderness, then you kind of need a, a way to reach somebody if something goes wrong, right? And so and so in the beginning, when you're writing Kotlin for for Android, you're kind of out there, and so you need a lifeline. Especially, you know, if you're doing it for uh, work and and it has to it has to work, it's not just a hobby. Then uh, you need a community. You need somebody that you can go to who is you know uber expert, and you can say, "Look, I'm getting this you know really esoteric error. Please help me." And uh, now maybe the the path is just so well traveled that you don't have to really socialize to to get your app done. So it's just you know a blessing and a curse at the same time. Yes, that uh, and that does change a lot. I, I remember when uh, Google uh, announced that Kotlin is becoming the. Back then, it was another language for, for Android. Right now, it's uh, the primary language for Android development. But um, I remember the day when uh, they announced that it's becoming another language for Android uh, development after after Java. And I was like, okay, we, we are opening champagne. It's a it's a huge day for us. And a friend a friend of mine uh, who who was um, a bit a bit older, a bit um, for a bit longer in this um, programming community, he was he was really sad, and uh, he just <laughs> looked at me and he said, "We just uh, stopped being hipsters, and uh, <laughs> every, everything changes now." And uh, I believe like a year later, he left Kotlin and he started another big thing. So, Oh, what is his big thing? What is his next big thing? Uh, he, he, he got um, into Eternum and uh, all those smart contracts. Oh, okay, I'm, got I'm, it. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure if this, this truly became a big thing, but, but I've never truly uh, researched that. But uh, he was very fascinated, fascinated when, we, when he started that. Wow, yeah, what an innovator. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it, I don't know very much about smart contracts either, but it's, it's almost a household name at this point. Yeah, I mean, there are many people like that. Um, I, I had a pleasure to work in a, quite a few startups. And um, one thing that I truly enjoyed is the mindset of people that people just want to work on the break changing things and uh, and uh, change the world and do amazing uh, amazing things and uh, many of those people when startup finally becomes a, a serious company many of those people can stay there and make a, a great money but they decide to leave it instead to to work on, on another big thing 
Yeah, that's right. Wow, it's wild. So, so okay. So you were uh, in, you know, finishing up university, and you're building uh, Android. You're working on Android apps, and uh, writing a lot of Java, and and hating life. And you you had a you had a life hating factory, and then a factory implementation factory. And you're just oh my god, why do I have a million different factories and, and like every callback has to be a class. And so it's just driving everyone crazy. Right. So, well, maybe you could talk about, uh, you know, I, I threw out some stereotypes there, but what are the things specifically that really bothered you about Java? I think that the Kotlin in its most basic form is nothing really new. There are new things right now, like coroutines or multi-platform capabilities and they, they are big. Okay. But the, the, the base of Kotlin is just, I believe, how Java should look like. <laughs> it is uh, how I think Java would look like, more or less, if it were making hard decisions and uh, evolving as it should evolve. You know, I mean, you know, of course, uh, the, the big problem of, of, of Java is backward compatibility. They do not change to not break people's code. So uh, I'm not saying that Java made a um, poor decision. I'm just saying that if Java would make the changes it should make, in my opinion, it would end up looking something like Kotlin looks like right now. Plus, it, it has some, uh, some things that were designed well um, from the beginning. So Kotlin has a really well-organized typing system, something people do not... Uh, see as as important, but it's extremely uh, extremely important um, from f from the perspective of of, of using uh, our our code. So when you say uh, organized type system, are you talking about like uh, like the type hints and the type inference? So you could say you know val x equals three, and you don't have to go and find out is it an int or a long or, or deal with a lot of a lot of that, or what makes it organized? So, um, for instance, in Kotlin, uh, from the beginning, you have a type to represent uh, nullable and not nullable uh, types. Ah, right. Uh, what, is, what is extremely important, because only then you can have um, uh, proper type safety mechanisms, uh, something that is still not very well implemented by most modern uh, languages. And what is more, uh, Kotlin uh, made a very strict relationship between uh, those types. So uh, a nullable type is a super type of, of, of not nullable type. What opens a door for many uh, important use cases. In Kotlin, everything is, uh, is an expression. Uh, we also have a, a, a nothing type, a, a, an empty type, that is a subtype of all the type, but has no instances. It's another thing that seems minor from people who do not use that, but it's really, really important on some use cases uh, that, uh, that allows language to, to truly behave well. Um, those, are, those are small things that are very hard to repair in the language once you publish that, but uh, that, that, that were done really, really well in, in Kotlin from the beginning. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. What actually happens under the hood when you, is Kotlin a JVM language? So does Kotlin compile down to the JVM or is it, is it something different entirely? In general, Kotlin is a compiled language. Uh, so it is compiled to something more simple. And in the version that is most often used, it is compiled into uh, JVM bytecode, just like Java. Uh, however, uh, there are different flavors of uh, Kotlin, or you can say pl platform targets. 
there is a, a Kotlin uh, JS that is compiled into JavaScript, uh, and there is Kotlin native that is um, compiled into the native code. Why is it important? On Android, it is important because it allows us to make libraries that are used both by Android and by iOS. So we can easily make a, a common common part. And uh, teams like to include more and more on those common parts. Uh, business logic, you know, this is generally the same for, for both platforms. Even uh, views, there, there is this new um, approach, the, the Jetpack Compose library that uh, allows you to uh, create views in a, a pure Kotlin using a Kotlin DSL in a really nice style with a, with a nice auto-completion and uh, with uh, absolute um, type safety. And, uh, you know, project in, in projects in Jetpack Compose can be compiled to JVM and, and run on Android or, or on desktop but they can be also compiled into JS and uh, and be displayed as a website or be compiled into uh, a native code and uh, be a native application for what whatever system you want so that's a, that's a that's a new thing and a very very powerful that that comes from the fact that 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 kotlin is a is a multi platform language you can uh, use kotlin to write on on any of those platform or or you can use it to write a module that is that can be compiled into multiple platforms at the same time. How does the iOS work? So you would compile to like a native library? You'd have to somehow create some kind of Objective-C interop or something, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. So you could say that the result code is the same that what you would have if you would compile an Objective-C. And yes, Objective-C is used here to, to interrupt with Swift or with Objective-C projects. Oh, interesting. Oh, very cool. Does it generate the interop layer for you? Or how did, do you have to write that yourself? It generates it. Oh, wow. That's super cool. For, for other languages as well. I, I, have, I do not have much experience with this uh, native part. However, uh, recently I had the experience, I was writing a library. Uh, I'm, I'm learning things using, using a flashcards in a program called Anki. And uh, I wanted to make a, uh, a notes that are automatically generating a notes for this Anki program. And uh, I wrote a program for that in, in Kotlin. I developed in Kotlin JVM. But to transform my notes into Anki or Anki deck into notes, because it goes in both directions, I needed to start a, uh, a JVM program every time. I, I did not like that. And uh, then I figured out I'm, I'm using um, the Obsidian uh, note for, it's a, it's a program for a, for a notes, quite a popular one recently, where you write all, all your notes in, in Markdown. And I figured out that you can make a plugin for Obsidian. And if you write a plugin for Obsidian, you can add a button that starts some process basically. And um, I migrated this Kotlin code from you know Java into Kotlin JS and used it to make a plugin for Obsidian from that. It was very very easy, practically no effort needed. I think the only thing that I needed to change is that I was using the uh, files API and I just needed to get rid of that and that's it. Everything else worked exactly the same way and uh, and i'm still playing with that but i but i do have it working so i, I now have a 
uh, Obsidian plugin where I have button, you know, uh, send, uh, push to Anki or pull from Anki, and, and this and, and it does work. I'm, I'm still working on on that until it is stable until I announce that and publish it. But for my own use, it is already usable and uh, and uh, it, it it did not took so much time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's really really cool. So. Yeah, actually, Obsidian looks awesome. I just went to obsidian.md and took a look. This is, I, I use Workflowy. I'm not crazy about it. I'm definitely going to check out Obsidian. This looks, this looks awesome. But yeah, this is, you know, as someone, I've only um, made apps as a kind of a, a hobby. Um, and so I've never had a strong desire to make an app for iOS and Android. I mean, the same app. And so I always kind of wondered how people, you know, dealt with that. And this seems like a really clever way where um, you write in in Kotlin and and now you get a you know a, your business logic in a, in a shared library that then you you know, interact with um, you know from your main you know view code. Um, it's really cool. So you were working on apps um, in Java, and at some point you either had to convince your company to switch to Kotlin or you had to change jobs. So which, what happened there and how, how did that play out? I, I needed to change job. I mean, uh, <laughs> back, back then there was there were maybe a few companies in Poland using uh, Kotlin and uh, I sent resume to uh, probably all of them. And, um, uh, you know, Kotlin was uh, still in beta back then and no big company wanted to use it. Uh, however, uh, startups did use that. So um, the co company that uh, accepted me uh, was a, a doc planner. Probably don't uh, know about it because um, it's not present in the US. Uh, it's present in some Europe and uh, a big part of uh, South America. That's a service where uh, as a doctor, you can uh, register and uh, People can rate you, you can have calendar, and uh, it's uh, literally like an assistant for doctors and, uh, and patients can, you know, find the, the best doctors and can check their prices. Yeah, that's interesting by, you know, being passionate about this, uh, you know, early technology and then picking companies that are using it, you're kind of by definition picking companies that are sort of on the cutting edge and for them to take a risk, it means that their leadership must be pretty technical. It's kind of like, it's really interesting. It's, it's like, I feel like it's a good signal for picking uh, companies to join, right? Is if, if they have this sort of um, um, same passion that you do about some emerging technology, then uh, I think that's a really good way to build alignment. Yes. I even heard that it's a strategy of some companies that they intentionally use those new and untested technologies so they find people who are kind of crazy who are who are willing to uh, have less money and uh, probably more work for doing what uh, what is their passion and what what they what they love to do also it's a good strategy for for companies uh, like startups because um, it's actually easier to find people uh, i mean I heard so. It is easier to find uh, people in those kind of um, technologies because, you know, developers um, pretty often want to be ahead of, of others uh, in terms mm -hmm. of technology and uh, companies are more often unwilling to, uh, to, to use something that is not yet tested and, uh, and proven to be 
working well. All right, so Patrick and I are taking notes here. If, if one of these days we ever start a company, we'll make everyone write in Piet <laughs> or that language that's all uh, all uh, um, brackets or something. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But uh, that's, that's amazing. I mean, the other thing too is uh, it's a way for you to invest in your future. So, uh, you know, if you go to, let's say maybe a bigger company and they're doing PHP, just like everyone else is doing PHP and you learn PHP, that's great. But if you can join a company that's, especially if you believe, like if you have a crystal ball and you know this language is going to be really big um, and you join a company that's using it early on, you're kind of investing in, in your future self. Yes. I always seen it as a, as a bets we make, you know, they're like those waves that you can go with um there are those old and lazy waves like java um, or, or python that i really like and respect but it is also um not uh, not pushing you much you know because yep. uh, there are already plenty people who, who know those languages uh, who who have experience who who are, who are teaching it who who have materials etc etc so it's a very safe way to to choose a big language like this one but it's not something that will by itself push your career. Um, but choosing something that is uh, new and um, and risky is, um, you know, on one side, it's very risky because uh, this technology might, might die, <laughs> literally. Mm-hmm. But if it goes far, it can push you together with it. Uh, by the way, another another thing that I I, I truly believe back then. I, I remember one one thing was was Kotlin that really inspired me. That I was really fascinated about. But the the second thing I was truly passionate about was this multi-platform library called RoboVM. Um, it uh, does not exist anymore. It's uh, it was a really nice idea that you can write a code in in Java or Kotlin. Both were supported, and uh, this code worked natively on Android. But it also was compiled into to a native code on on um, on, on iOS, and and so you could also make a multi-platform applications. So um, I, I, what happened to that? I believe that uh, uh, Microsoft just bought it and killed the project because oh, it was yeah that yeah. happens. And uh, yeah, and so all the people who invested their their time and energy into this fascinating project, you know, lost it. <laughs> I mean, you know, that almost happened to Java. You know, I mean, when when Oracle acquired Sun, there was a period of time where people were uncertain about the legality of using Java and writing your own version of the JVM and all of that. And uh, at that time, people were wondering if Java was really going to survive this legal battle. And uh, I think it was just, it's just at that state where it's too big to fail or too big to fall or, or what have you. But, uh, but I've seen a lot of, you know, JVM languages, Scala, Kotlin. Oh, there's another one that's, I'm, I'm totally drawing a blank on. There's, it was based on, on Scheme. But there's a bunch of these that you know, run on the JVM, but are slowly kind of eating away at Java. My guess is Java is, stable or on the decline but i'd have to look to actually see the the data on that yeah all the data indicate that ah okay yep there there you go so yeah so so the the type safety and what i noticed when i um so i wrote a uh my own version of google photos so basically 
Uh, I have an S3 bucket. And whenever I take a photo, my phone waits for Wi-Fi. When it gets Wi-Fi, it looks at all the photos that it doesn't already have on that bucket and it you know, uploads them. And so I have just a, a simple Google Photos uh, clone type thing. Um, and when I wrote it in Kotlin, there's a few things that really stood out to me. I mean, one was it was literally a decade since I made an Android app. So the whole ecosystem is way, way better now than it was 10 years ago. But it felt like, um, you know, I really enjoyed the editor, the integrated experience and, and all of the sort of quick fixes that were happening. And even the fact that I could, one thing that really shocked me was I could actually take Java code from Stack Overflow or Java files from other projects, and I could convert them to Kotlin. And it, 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 give, it could even in line convert blocks of Java code to Kotlin. That really struck me. It's just amazing how that, because it's not trivial to do that. I found that really uh, pleasant, really surprising. Yeah, yes, that's from the beginning. And also, you can pretty easily migrate the whole project and um, that works. Uh, however, of course, it's uh, far, far from being a good Kotlin code because um, it's a Javish code. And uh, the, the next step is to uh, start using Kotlin idioms to improve uh, readability and safety of this solution you know but yes uh, the uh, a simple solution can be can be done by this auto, auto transformation and it, it works it works really nice yeah i mean it's a great way to kind of get started and as you said you can see what's going on there and then rewrite it or or update it yeah there is there is actually a a, a cool tool that many beginners use so if you have android studio or intellij open you can just go into tools, Kotlin, show Kotlin bytecode, and uh, you can see what your Kotlin code is compiled to. So if you are a fan of JVM bytecode, you can you can read it there. If you are not, there is this button decompile, and this button decompiles your bytecode into Java. It's a strange journey because we compiled Kotlin into JVM bytecode, then decompiled it into Java, and you can see how it works. That's a very useful tool for those who come from Java. They are learning Kotlin and they are trying to understand how something works. You can just see how this code would look like if it were written in Java, any code. Yeah, that is super, super cool. If I remember correctly, uh, or maybe I'm wrong about this now, but at the time, Java doesn't have uh, coroutines, right? So if you write coroutines in Kotlin, how, how does that end up and you try to decompile it, do you get an error or what, what actually happens there? Okay, so maybe I will start with what are coroutines. Yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah, that's true. It's a good point. So um, people often say that coroutines are like lightweight threads. Uh, I think that's, a, um, I mean, it can, it can be a good start uh, as uh, it's a, it might be a, a useful metaphor to understand that they are lightweight and uh, they are kind of like threads, but it's also very confusing because um, coroutines are, are, are not threads. So um, coroutines are already present in, in many languages in, in some limited form. Coroutines are present in, in JavaScript, uh, in Python, in C, uh, C Sharp. Any async await block is a coroutine. Any generator is a coroutine, but you know, a very limited use of, the, of a coroutine. So now what a coroutine is. Coroutine is a, a piece of code, some kind of block that can be suspended 
at any point. You know, later you can resume it from that point. So the word suspended is very important because it's not blocked. It is suspended. Uh, so it means that when you suspend a coroutine, what you have is a continuation object. This is an object, an object that has all the local state, literally something like call stack. So all the local variables of this function, of the function that called it, of the function that called it, etc., etc. Um, so that's that's what continuation has, and um, this object is like a like a save. You can can keep it in your local memory. Formally, you can even serialize it and uh, later deserialize it. Nevertheless, at any point you can resume it and continue from where your, your function stopped. So it, it means that you can literally jump in the middle of the function and you know start from uh, there. Perfect uh, implementation of coroutines uh, requires a control of platform to you know capture this this stack and uh, restore it. Uh, Kotlin does not have it because it does not control the platform. So it simulates it by having those continuation objects that 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 store it. Wait, hang on. Let me let me dive into that because that that blows my mind. So so how does Kotlin able to store all the local variables? Is that part of the Java JDK where you can get all of that? It's a it's a simpler concept. So in Kotlin, the functions that can be suspended are suspending functions. They they have sus suspend keyword. Such a functions under the hood are passing this continuation object that is, you know, a reference to their local state. Uh, and this object is used to, to keep this local state when, when someone suspends it. The, the, very important, the, the very important thing uh, to notice is that this is not an additional cost because, uh, I mean, it is, but very small one, because we are not, we are not copying this state. We're only adding another reference to it. So if you have a local variable with a list that is placed somewhere in the memory, you know, the, the variable is a reference to a point in a memory, okay? Then the continuation does not have a list. It have a reference to the same point in the memory. So creating those continuation objects is super cheap because, you know, you're not copying the state. It's like a shallow copy. Yes, it's it's like a shallow copy, but we want it this way. Yes, mm -hmm. we want it this way because you know if the continuation is suspended, then the local variables are gone because you know your right. your your execution is finished for for this uh, uh, coroutine. But you know you still have a single reference to that in the continuation, and uh, and that's how it works. And um, that's pretty smart. Of course, if uh, because Java has plans to introduce coroutines, uh, and I'm mm, I, I believe that they they will do they, they will introduce them in a century or two from now on. <laughs> and uh, Kotlin is designed to um, to support that if they finally introduce that. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what one place where I found myself needing to use coroutines, and this this goes way back. I wanted to make a uh, like an RPG game. And I was, this was a long time ago. I was actually in uh, high school, I think, and I only knew C++. And, um, you know, if you've ever played any of these RPGs, 
you go to the town and there's people walking around in the town and you can walk up to them and press the button on a joystick or a keyboard or whatever and start a conversation, right? And they have some dialogue that they'll say on command. When you're not talking to them, they're kind of wandering aimlessly or maybe they have a path that they follow or what have you. And so, you know, each person is kind of, uh, you know, operating on their own timeline. Like you don't want every person in the town to move at exactly the same time. It would look very robotic and weird, right? So you want to have each person sort of with their own timer that says, okay, you know, a few seconds have passed, let's move to the bookshelf and let's take some steps. Or, you know, I just took a step, now I have to wait a second. And so, you know, again, this is very early. So I thought, oh, I'll just have each person become their own thread. And when they're not walking, the thread will just be sleeping. And what I found is, yeah, you actually can't create thousands and thousands and thousands of literal threads because there's so much overhead there. And even a thread that's asleep, you know, consumes a lot of resources. And it turns out if you have a ton of threads that are asleep, you end up running out of cores and it's just kind of a mess, right? So you end up having to uh, do something else where you kind of like visit all of these characters and wake them up and say, hey, are you ready to do anything? And they say, oh, no, I, I need to sleep for another, you know, cycle. I'll walk next cycle. And so you can go to the next one. And so every cycle, you kind of round robin, go through all these villagers, you know, kind of waking them up, letting them do a cycle and then going to the next one. And it becomes really cumbersome because, as you said, if a villager has some internal state, it needs to like uh, wait, uh, you know, 27 cycles before taking the next step. You have to go and update that internal state and everything now has to be in uh, like a, you know, C++ has to be in like a dictionary or something. And so you lose type safety and it feels very unnatural, right? What's much better is if you could actually have like a, a you know, a not literally a process like a Unix process, but have like a, you know, separate routine for each, uh, uh, you know, villager. And in that routine, you could say, you know, sleep for a second and take a step and do this forever and not have to worry about all the overhead um, and let, let, let the OS handle, you know, keeping the state of all those people and everything. And so, so uh, you know, at the time, I, I didn't know about coroutines, so, uh, you know, I had to implement a really ugly way. But I've always found coroutines a really elegant, kind of beautiful way of handling, uh, you know, many, many objects that all need to have their own internal state at the same time. Sure. Um, but I will probably synchronize it with a single timer anyway. <laughs> I, I, I haven't done a, a big game project, but um, in a small one, I... I, I wouldn't like having independent timers for for different parts of a game because you know then your game is overloading your your computer. Some things are getting slow, and uh, now all the elements are you know living in their own time. I generally believe there is a tendency to to rather synchronize everything with a, with a single clock, and I would rather use objects. However, uh, you could um, the, the the actor model seems like a, uh, something that, that that could be helpful in here. And uh, in Kotlin, we use coroutines for, for the actor model. Yeah, why don't you di dive into that? So like, there's a lot of folks here who have maybe never built an app. They do web or they do backend or something like that. So kind of connect us from sort of the app development to coroutines. When are they used? How? What's the you know kind of best use for them? And, and why are they a good idea? Okay, so... 
there are a few typical use cases. So the, the most typical one is that, uh, let's say that you, uh, on your application, uh, you need to fetch some data from the internet and you need to wait for those data because it takes some time to get them from your API. Um, the question is, how do you wait for that? So if you block your thread um, while waiting for the response, you need to well-manage threads because there are some threads you should not block, other threads you can block, but they are expensive and you should not block too many of them. So <clears throat> that's, a, that's problematic. So coroutines solve that problem. You just suspend the coroutine when you wait for something and resume it when you got it. Then using coroutines, it's pretty easy to implement async await. I mean, they are, they are built into the Kotlin coroutines library. And there are, there are two parts of Kotlin coroutines. There is a built-in support that you know gives you the capability to suspend, start coroutine, etc. And there is a library that that gives you tools like async await or or, or sequence generators, etc., etc., uh, with yield. Um, and so um, then, uh, pretty often we we use async await in a similar way as as in other languages, but you know uh, they are they are implemented using coroutines. Another thing is that. Uh, if you are implementing a, a backend application, as uh, Jason uh, mentioned in here, um, if you start too many threads, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge cost for your computer. So if um, you have a pool of threads that you use on your, on your backend system and you have uh, lots but lots of requests, um, then, um, then you need to start a lot of threads on, on, on your pool. All, or you need to make your requests uh, wait, what is not, not optimal. Uh, each thread is at least one megabyte of data. Each thread allocates one megabyte of data. It is also a significant cost for the from the perspective of uh, processor or operating system synchronization. So if you start having, let's say, 1,000 threads, it's, it's already a, 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 a visible burden on your processor time, you know, the energy used only to ma manage them. And it's all already one um, gigabyte of, of RAM at least. If you have uh, 10,000 of them, <laughs> that's, uh, that's uh, very, very unlikely your, your application will, will work fine. And, you know, in a, in a, in a big systems, mm, you know, the having those numbers of requests is not so hard to reach. Yeah, the other thing is you can really shoot yourself in the foot. I have a couple of stories. One, um, uh, Patrick and I worked together a really long time ago, and we worked on a project where um, we were doing some some image processing, and um, we were trying, uh, you know, kind of a, a new way of doing image processing, and basically. This was all, we were prototyping something um, on the desktop. And I'm pretty sure, you can correct me on this, Patrick, but I'm pretty sure what, what we did was we we created a new, either a new thread or a new process uh, for every frame. Um, I, I, yeah, again, this is you know, us not knowing what we're doing. And so we couldn't figure out why, you know, right around like 20, 30,000 frames, the Python program died. And then we would have to like, run it again on the next 30,000 frames. And it's because we, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing. We didn't realize, okay, there's this huge overhead. And if I, you know, if I, um, what I really need to do is use a thread pool or even better use async await, which you know, has a thread pool under the hood and it takes care of that for you. A similar story 
There was actually a period of time where, uh, you know, the street view, which is the Google Maps where you can go down to the street level and see the photos of the of the street, that service actually leaked threads. So there was some part of that service that was creating threads and not releasing them, like not cleaning them up. And so there's there's a period of time. Now, when I say period of time, I'm talking years where where the Street View service, um, you know, a single instance of that service could only live for a few hours <laughs> because it would eventually uh, allocate too many threads and, and get killed by the hypervisor. And so the the solution for maybe not years, but definitely for about half a year, the the solution was to just uh, you know keep enough services, enough instances up and running. And so for like half a year, Street View limped along with uh, with uh, with that. Um, and and you know async await solves all of that. I mean, you still have to do tuning and all of that if you're performance conscious, but it's very hard, much harder to shoot yourself in the foot with with async await. Yeah. So in Kotlin, we use coroutines. <laughs> uh, we use coroutines. We start um, uh, request. Uh, we, we, the typical approach right now is to handle each request in a separate coroutine. And um, those coroutines um, have their own pool of threads because the Kotlin coroutines library has a, a default built-in support for pool of threads so that when you when you start a coroutine, you can decide on what pool of threads it, it is supposed to run, and um, if uh, in this case um, it will run on the optimal number of um, threads for your machine, and that is of course the number of cores on your on your machine. So uh, if you if you have a sixteen core uh, server, uh, it, it will start sixteen cores and um, probably tens of thousands of requests will you know be on tens of thousands of, of coroutines that is that is uh, practically no burden at all and that are that are running on on those 16 um, threads interchangeably um, only when they are well, only only when they are needed whenever whenever they they are waiting for something like response from database or from another service the coroutine is suspended both suspending and resuming is a very cheap operation, so it's a, it's a very very close to the to the optimal. That is, you know, uh, the theoretical um, way where 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 you know processor only does what what it what it uh, should do. So uh, business logic of yours. Yeah, one thing I always wondered, um, and I never took the time to do an experiment to find this out. You probably know this offhand. Is is um, you know, let's say you have uh, sixteen cores. And I create seventeen coroutines, and they all have a lot of work to do. Does it does it uh, share time between those seventeen, or does it finish the first sixteen and then do the seventeen? So coroutines can only switch uh, at the suspension points. So if 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 those coroutines never suspend, what is very unlikely because we generally use coroutines to do things that are suspending. Uh, so if they never suspend the, you know, you said sixteen and seventeen, so sixteen of them will work, you know, until they are done, until the first of them is done, and then then the seventeenth will be able able to start. However, even in such extremely rare situations, there are good practices like using there is this yield function with no with no arguments that is only a suspension point, only a place where. Where you can have a switch and uh, give uh, another other coroutines a, a a 
uh, a time for for processing i use it extremely extremely rarely probably only only a few few times in my life because uh, it only makes sense in um, uh, in processes that are that are uh, uh, you know either um that are blocking threads without suspension for a very very long time so either doing a lot of work or doing a lot of um or doing some some waiting but in in, in such a case there is also a different case because if you have a coroutine that is waiting you are not using the the pool of threads that is designed to be efficient but instead a different one um that is called dispatchers io that is designed to be blocked so uh, there are, as, as I said, there, there are different pool of threads for, for different purposes. If you have things that are blocking, there is a dispatcher's I.O. to be blocked. If you have things that are that should be CPU intensive, that are that are doing you know processing, there is dispatcher's default that has as many coroutines, uh, as many threads as you have cores on your CPU. And on Android, the most popular is dispatcher's main, that is a pool of threads that only has one thread that is the main thread, that is the most important thread on Android. So, um, by the way, actually, that's that's also funny because people think that coroutines means multiple threads, and uh, it, it can mean that. But pretty often, that's a, that's, that's a lazy development, but never, nevertheless, many, many companies do that. Pretty often... Um, Android projects run only on a single thread that is the main thread. And it's perfectly fine because it's never blocked. So, I mean, it's not perfectly fine if you do too much work. But if you if you are not doing any CPU intensive things, only, you know, a, a thin client, you know, fetching data and displaying them, it's generally fine. Uh, because with coroutines, you never block the threads. You only only use it when you when you need it when you need to use it, and um, that's a that's a valid approach for a, for a simple applications with no CPU intensive operations. That makes sense. So so yeah, totally makes sense. I think let's use the photos app example. You know, if I I do a, a scan using the SQLite, I think it's called Room, the wrapper around SQLite on Android. But but I have some SQLite query. I compare it to my media. And I'm forgetting all the jargon here, my media service. And it says, okay, I have these 400 uh, images to upload. Um, so I can start 400 coroutines right off the bat. It will only start maybe eight of them uh, at a time. If I say eight cores, you know, should be, or eight threads should be, you know, allocated for this, wait for those eight to finish and do the next one. But I can start all 10,000 of them because the overhead is, is so low. And then, um, um, you know, and then eventually it'll, chew through all of those and finish. What about, yeah, if something is is really CPU heavy, like for example, I want to uh, detect faces in the photo on the phone for some reason. I, I don't actually do this, but let's say as, as a thought experiment. So it sounds like, you know, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong here, it sounds like what you would do is you would create a thread pool uh, that's maybe not all the cores because you don't want to, you know, maximize someone's phone. And then you would put these 10,000 requests into that smaller thread pool that's not the main pool or anything like that. And then those, those coroutines will, you know, uh, monopolize that thread pool until they're all done. Um, but it won't kind of, you know, make your phone uh, burn a hole through your pocket or anything. Yes, there are, there are tools for that. You can limit uh, parallelism for, uh, uh, for, 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 for your usage. The, the the whole chapter uh, dispatchers uh, in my book Kotlin coroutines is, is about that 
Um, basically, there are there there are two pick, two typical use cases. One of them is exactly what you described. So, if you have CPU intensive things, use dispatcher's default that uses as many uh, threads as you have cores. However, if you think you might use it too intensively, you might starve other processes, what is not good. And for such a case, we use dispatcher's default dot limited parallelism, and we set up a limit. And it can be one or two or four or whatever. And now you are still using uh, the same threads, okay? Mm, to, in the end, not, not use for CPU intensive operations more than you have CPU in, in your processor, but you, you limited your concrete kind of use to a certain number of threads to not starve others. That's, 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 the, that's the suggested way to do that. It's not, of, of course, it's not, not the only one. You can pretty easily create a new pool of threads with a, with a new threads. But if you do that, then, you know, uh, if, if you use your threads the maximum and the uh, dispatcher's default is used by someone, uh, but by, by some other process do the maximum, you are using more than number of cores in your, in your CPU. What is, what is suboptimal for your processing? I mean, it's, it's not a big problem if, if this is only, there is only a few more threads than, than the, than the optimal one, but, but it's, it's, it's less optimal than it could be if you, if you would. Uh, restrict your CPU intensive operations to to the number of 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 of, of cores on your, on your CPU. There is also another case. So the another case is with a uh, blocking calls. So as I as I told you, there is a different um, dispatcher for for blocking calls, and um, this dispatcher also has a limit. Uh, it has a limit um, because it's a uh, pretty dangerous to not give any limit at all. You know, because let's say that you are using some library that is um, uh, blocking your thread when it fetches something from the internet, and then you start ten thousand uh, processes, and you start ten thousand threads. That that's what would happen if you would have no limit, and probably your app would crash or something like that. So there there must be a limit. And so Kotlin team was thinking about the the limits. They they've been meditating in in, in the wild for for years. And then the light came from the sky and uh, there was the number 64. And that's, that's, that's the default limit. And uh, that's a good limit for Android applications, actually. If you, if, you, if you need more than 64 applications for blocking operations on Android, you probably do something uh, wrong. Uh, however, it's not such a big limit for a backend applications <laughs> uh, because some, sometimes on backend, we just, we just need to 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 use our memory more to to speed up some some processes um, and uh, and for that um, we also use limited parallelism I, I think it should have a different name for that but it actually is the same function that instead of adding a new limitation it transforms this dispatcher into a new one with a different independent limit and uh, so you can create a, a, a new pool of threads. Um, with, uh, with your own limit. So now, uh, wh why, I, why, I'm, why I'm saying about all those pool of threads? Why, why not creating a totally independent one? So the, so the, the point is that the, the, those pools I, I mentioned in here, they are part of one big pool, like one, one lake. Um, so the, the point is that creating a new thread is a cost and keeping it is also a cost. So the, the point is that you might need a thread by dispatcher's default and then switch 
to a coroutine that, that uses dispatcher's I.O. And the point is that you are not changing the thread. You can stay on the same thread, but this thread does not count as a, as a default anymore. It counts as an I.O. right now. So we are reusing resources. We are reusing the same threads. And what's a, what's a trick to, 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 to limit the cost of, of you know, creating threads? We are just re reusing the, 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 same, the same threads. What's a, what's a perfect mechanism? Because we still have limits that we set up um, before. Uh, those, you know, the, this, this, this lake is infinite. So <laughs> you, can, you can use, IO can use 64 of theirs default, I don't know, 16. And, um, and uh, our custom uh, limited can use 100 and other. And uh, that's, uh, that's perfectly fine. But if there is no need, mm, they are reusing the same threads. They are just, you know, switching them. And that also makes it possible, and it actually is how it works, that pretty often you, you, you switch with your operations. So you, you do something CPU intensive, then you switch into with another coroutine on the, um, uh, or, or even the, the, the same coroutine into uh, dispatcher's um, IO, because you, you do blocking, then into another one, into another one, and you can do many of those switches while still staying on the same thread. So you are on different moments, you are using limits from a different pools, but you are still staying on the same thread. So you do not need to really switch. It's very, very optimized, very well optimized in terms of performance on, on many levels. Yeah, I found that to be, you know, from a developer experience, to be extremely pleasant once I figured it out. There was a bit of a learning curve, but, but just to give an example, you might want to detect faces in the photo. And then once you've detected faces, you might want to say, draw a rectangle around them. And so, you know, that second part lives on uh, either, I guess, main or rendering or, or some thread that isn't sort of this off board process that's going to take a long time. You need to go back to the user interface process and draw those boxes, or at least tell the system that the boxes are ready. Yeah, it's all done with through this with keyword, right? It's it's uh, been a while since I saw this code, but you kind of say like with this context, with that context, and you're able to in the same coroutine jump context, do different things, and then jump back. Yes, uh, with context uh, function allows you to to jump into a different context. So it it formally starts a new coroutine, but um, you you might not even notice that. <laughs> Yeah, I find like anything that avoids uh, message passing is good. Message passing just seems to be uh, really problematic because you know you you now are not writing code anymore. You're kind of sending data back and forth between threads, and it's just very easy to mess that up to have sort of the wrong thread read the data and starve another thread. And I've just had so many issues with uh, message passing that this sort of like eliminates all of that. The fact that you can jump into different contexts and do work uh, without having to sort of pass a lot of uh, messages back and forth. And when you when you uh, use a with context, you are uh, suspending the coroutines. So 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 from a with context, you can return something that will be used on the on the continuation of the previous coroutine. I mean, I I think if you if you take a big picture and uh, compare what Kotlin has, comparing to what we have on, on JavaScript or, or on Python, the async await and, and, and sequence builders, uh, I think the, uh, there are a, a few things because, of course, the, the big point is that Kotlin in, uh, implemented that so that 
uh, with this approach, uh, we can implement a lot of things. You know, the, the, the support is very, very powerful and generic. That's a, that's a nice thing. Maybe someone will take it in the future, make a, a new amazing approach. But now if you compare the Kotlin coroutines library, so the actual tools that we use, the main differences between JavaScript and, and, uh, and using Kotlin coroutines in practice is that first of first of all Kotlin has a much more powerful built-in synchronization so that you can if you if you start a bunch of suspending functions by default you are awaiting for, for, for them because I mean they do not start a new coroutine they are just you know suspending functions they are just functions that, that can be suspended. Um, you can always make them async but you do not need to you know in, in javascript it's the opposite everything is async you need to synchronize directly and then the synchronization mechanisms are present on on many different uh, levels what 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 is a what is a very nice um, power of of kotlin another thing is that we have uh, these dispatchers um mechanisms so managing threads uh, that's a, that's a huge huge power i i haven't seen that on on other uh, languages implemented uh, this way Another thing is cancellation, a very important thing on Android because pretty often on Android you open a window, an activity or some other kind of window and you immediately close it. So when you open that, some processes start it and um, when you close it, you should cancel them because if you don't do that, then some processing happens, uh, some processing that, that, you know, never Will, will lead to nothing because it, it has no views to update. Then it will try to update those views, what will lead to some exceptions in background because those views do not exist. So you need to cancel. And uh, that's, a, that's a problem of many other approaches. Kotlin has a built-in cancellation mechanisms. How does that work? So, so if, a, if a coroutine gets canceled, what happens inside the coroutine? It throws an exception, a runtime exception or something? There, there is a chapter about that. <laughs> That's all <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not easy to write. Uh, it's not easy to, to implement a good uh, exception handling mechanisms. Uh, you know, because um, people, if if you ask people what, how to do that, the, their first intuition is to to just stop uh, the process. What is a what is a terrible idea? Because very pretty often you need to clean up after yourself, uh, and so um, your intuition is, is is actually really good. Because what does happen is out of a suspension point, there is a, a special kind of exception thrown, a cancellation exception that propagates and kind of closes everything. Mm, that's uh, that's that's one thing that that that's the part that stops a current process. Also in coroutines we have this parent-child relationship, the structured concurrency another very powerful thing of, of Kotlin coroutines. And so when you cancel the parents, it cancels its children's. So it also propagates this way. And, um, and uh, together uh, with this, uh, you can, first of all, uh, if you have a finally block, uh, it will always be um, executed when, when you cancel. So it's, it's guaranteed. Uh, second of all, um, you can easily set up some callbacks on, on cancellation. And uh, we set them on, on many different layers. So for instance, the libraries that uh, do network calls, they also set up callbacks on, on, your, on, on their suspending functions cancellation um, because they, they probably need to, uh, to also clean up some resources to, <laughs> to, to inform some processes that there is no need to wait for that, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, one thing I I noticed about doing phone development is how the 
the OS plays a much bigger role. Like for example, the, the one that comes out to me is, um, you know, I'd set this up where I didn't want somebody on a metered, oh, I didn't, I guess I'm the only user here, but I didn't want myself on a metered connection, like on a 3G or 4G connection to be uploading these big photos to, to the S3, right? So, so I, I asked Android, to set up this, uh, I think it's called a service, and the service only runs if I'm on Wi-Fi. And so if I get off of Wi-Fi and I have some big upload, maybe I'm uploading a large video, um, I need it to stop doing that so I don't end up with some big bill you know, at the end of the month. And in practice, the way this works is by, is by canceling the coroutine that is doing that, that big upload. And so in this way, you know, the, the OS is, is is sort of aware of you know your Wi-Fi state, and it can go and cancel your coroutine. And so as a as a as an app developer, I noticed I had to be much more in tune with what the OS can do and how to handle that appropriately. Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, I uh, I was always saying that you need to choose your poison depending on what discipline do you. What, what kind of development do you do you choose to to do? So of course, in in backend, you are mainly fighting with your databases that they are changing structure or that you need to make operations on databases to make them more efficient. And also with your API, so that how does it look like? What what versions do you support? And of course, the um, um, spread it and and often weirdly packed business logic on the. On front-end, uh, you generally fight mostly with um, different uh, screen sizes, with uh, CSS, um, and uh, with reusability of, of, of your uh, components. And uh, on Android, uh, I, uh, I also see that, um, that the, there are two, two kinds of things you are fighting. One of them is uh, communication with your operating system, and another one is uh, designing your views. So, um, um, you know, of course, designing views for, for different kind of screen sizes that's, uh, that can be, you know, time consuming and, and annoying uh, sometimes. Um, and uh, the second thing is um, communicating with, with operating system on, on, on many, many, many layers, you know, how you handle notifications, how you handle network, um, what, what happens in some different situations, you know, is <laughs> that... Uh, there, there are there are many many things that that, that a good Android developer should, should know. I remember there was this function that where you should clean up your resources, but the truth was that in some cases it uh, it it wasn't called. It has never never been called uh, because um, if you uh, if your your application was stashed, if if it was moved to, to background, and then the memory has stopped then it could be killed without invoking the, the life cycle so that people uh, needed to know that uh, they, they, they needed to do uh, special tricks to properly clean up some, some important resources on earlier life cycle functions. So there, there are many, many things that are part of fighting with, with operating systems on, on Android. Yeah, totally. I remember uh, you know, years and years ago, the user experience on Android being so jagged, you know, so glitchy where it would freeze all the time because people were just doing things on the main thread. And uh, and I think on iOS, 
something about Objective C, or there was something in the language where if you did things on the main thread, iOS just wouldn't compile, and so they forced you to uh, to keep the main thread smooth. And then at some point, uh, Android, I don't know if they force you now, but at some point, Android apps became smooth as well. At some point, Android creators uh, started throwing uh, an exception when you made uh, network operations on the the main thread. But but that's that's far from perfect. (laughs) There there are still many things that that, that people do on the main thread that, that they should not. Yep. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, it was a good start anyways. At least it seems like apps are much more responsive now. Yeah, also phones are faster. <laughs> well, that's we true, have, yeah. We have, we have more resources to waste. Yeah, Moore's Law rises all, all interfaces. <laughs> so. Cool, so this is, this is really fascinating. How can people, if someone wants to learn Kotlin, um, you have a, lot of, a ton of folks who listen in who are high school students, college students. Um, you know, they might be um, learning their first language in college and likely not going to be Kotlin. I mean, most colleges are teaching, uh, I guess, Python or Java or C++. Um, so, you know, if, if someone's just getting started in the field and, and you know, they hear what we're talking about, maybe they want to make an Android app or a backend app and they want to use Kotlin, what do you recommend is the way they get started? So uh, it all depends on from what level do you start? So if you um, if you start from uh, knowing other languages like like Java or or C sharp, and I think there is a really nice uh, Coursera course uh, made by um, Andrei Breslav, the initially the main creator of Kotlin, <laughs> later co-creator, uh, but the head of design team, um, and also Svetlana Izakova, who is a really really great. Um, evangelist and a great person and uh, extremely, extremely competent in, in teaching um, Kotlin. And uh, also, I also would recommend uh, a book uh, she co-authored uh, that is uh, Kotlin in Action that pretty well describes all the um, Kotlin features uh, together with their use cases and, um, and some essential informations about uh, using them if you start from the beginning, um, uh, there is a there there should be soon a course on um, on uh, Coursera made by Mita, the Facebook. Uh, <laughs> I cannot I I, I cannot uh, tell you uh, who wrote content for that, um, but I think it it will be uh, a really good one, and uh, it's a uh, part of Android Path, but it's uh, written so that it can be um, started by anyone. And uh, it's, uh, I believe, uh, Kotlin Essentials, or I believe so. I also write a book that is uh, Kotlin for Developers. Uh, it's actually a series of books because I couldn't match everything I wanted to, uh, to, to, to explain on a single book. So I split it into three books uh, it will be uh, Kotlin for Developers uh, Essentials I am working um, on at the moment. Uh, the Functional Kotlin, the second part of the series uh, that I uh, practically finished. Uh, it is uh, reviewed and at the moment and, um, and the different kinds of correctors are applying their corrections. It's already available on, on, on LeanPub, but um, I think it will be uh, available on Amazon no sooner than on maybe on no- uh, November 
or, or December, we are waiting for a surprise uh, host uh, chapter. Mm, I, I, I do not want oh, to nice. tell, tell too much about that, but, but, sure. but we, we will probably have a, a fascinating topics written by a really nice people countering this uh, guest uh, chapter. And there is advanced Kotlin that, that I, uh, I'm planning to write at the beginning of the next year. My books, uh, if this is time for my books. Yeah, let's hear it. My books are not for beginners. Um, the effective Kotlin uh, is uh, now uh, for Kotlin users. So it's for people using Kotlin already. And um, it's a, a you know a recipe uh, for getting better in Kotlin, I hope. Uh, for for mm-hmm. understanding uh, Kotlin more, and uh, for uh, you know, I included there a lot of uh, good practices and uh, a lot of ideas for for a good development. And um, also, Kotlin coroutines is also not directed to non-Kotlin developers. You need to know Kotlin at least a little bit to to understand this book. But uh, Kotlin Coroutines Deep Dive is a position, uh, a child of mine that I directed for for Kotlin developers um, teaching Kotlin Coroutines from the beginning until until everything I have to I have to 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 say on Kotlin Coroutines. I'm I'm very proud from from this position. It's based on a, a workshop of mine that I conducted for wow, probably at least 30, 30 iterations with, with every iteration it was, it was changing a bit. And, uh, and so I, I think it's a um, very well designed and very well thought through book. Uh, by the way, the, the first series of books, the cutting for developers is also um, uh, based on a workshop workshop of, of mine that teaches Kotlin from, from the beginning. And that's uh, also pretty well thought through. Very cool. And so, so you have the the workshops and the books. Are the books available on uh, like Kindle or, or Amazon? Or what's your primary vector for getting the books out to people? Uh, so my preference is for people to use a LeanPub because um, mm-hmm. it's a platform that um, where I uh, where I generate those books, so they are most up to date over there, uh, and it's also a platform where I have eighty percent of income from uh, from sales. Sorry to interrupt, but is it L I N Pub or is it L E A N Pub? Uh, lean, like you know, uh, like lean startup. Ah, okay, okay, lean pub. Okay, yeah. So we'll definitely put this in the show notes. And, uh, oh yeah, there's a ton of amazing books here. I've actually, this is my first time on this site. It's very, very cool. There, there are, there are many amazing authors there. And, uh, I, I think it's a really great service for writing books for developers. You write your code in a modified markdown and, uh, it generates, a, you know, a really nice output, um, a file you have all rights for, so you can, you can print it and, and, and distribute it. Uh, you can also get this printable version and upload upload it to uh, Amazon and sell it over there uh, on the um, KDP, uh, or you can sell through the platform where where eighty um, percent of uh, income goes to the author, what is pretty nice. 
and um, on Amazon, um, you know, <laughs> the the money from 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 eBooks are are are, are funny, are, are really really slow, small. Uh, nevertheless, um, I, I see that um, the sales are much bigger there, so it's uh, important for me that you know the books can reach people and that people uh, can read them and, and learn from them. And that, that, that always makes me happy. Yeah, I mean, this LeanPub, I, I just typed in PyTorch, which is uh, what I seem to be spending most of my time with lately. And uh, um, yeah, it's extremely great. It tells you directly, you know, what the author will learn, um, you know, what the overhead is. And uh, um, you know, it has a bunch of details on the book. You can see the contents, you can get all previews. Yeah, this is, this is super cool. I'm, I'm really glad uh, you shared this with us. There is also a money back guarantee. So if you buy a book, you don't like it, you just, you know, ask, give me your money back. It automatically happens. So, and I believe you have 45 days for that. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, as someone who, uh, you know, my, my overall philosophy to folks is to just build something uh, when they want to learn. And so following sort of eating my own dog food there, uh, I did uh, just jump into Kotlin by building this, this Photos app. Um, and what I found was that, uh, um, you know, now that we've talked, I realized that the way that I was setting up the coroutines, I was probably creating a lot of unnecessary thread pools. I think they're called executors. I'm, I'm, this is this was like two years ago, so I'm drawing a bit of a blank. But Yeah, we generally avoid that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is really fascinating. And so so this is, so, you know, I think, you know, get started by diving in. We we just shared with you some resources that we'll put in the notes. Almost every podcast listener app uh, should have the notes. If not, you can go to, to programmingthrowdown.com. And, um, you know, when you dive in, you're probably going to make all the same mistakes that all of the rest of us made when we wrote our first code. You can go back and read Kotlin coroutines, some of the more advanced texts. And and make your app you know super responsive and and fix uh, you know other sort of developer uh, landmines and all of that. I think it's a, it's a constant uh, learning you know cycle. Yeah, I actually see it as a problem of coroutines. That's probably the biggest problem of um, Kotlin coroutines that they are very easy to jump in and start doing something that somehow works. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's 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 perfect because um, coroutines are, I believe, extremely intuitive. So if you if you try to understand the general idea of how your program works, they do not disturb you. And when you see the code of coroutines, it it seems quite intuitive. That's 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 perfect. But from the other uh, side, um, it's very easy to do something that makes no sense in coroutines, and uh, you do not know about that. And um, people often often do that. The one thing I pretty often see is people creating jobs. There is this job object. That, you know, people people use it as a context, and this way they break their structured concurrency, so the cancellation does not work anymore, and they have memory leaks. But they but they do not know about that because they are not you know tracking their memory, and. Mm -hmm. uh, there are many traps of the, this one. So it's very easy to, to use that without understanding that. And as a result, there are many people using that incorrectly, thinking that they are using it okay. <laughs> and yep. uh, that's, that's, uh, that's the biggest problem of coroutines. I, 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 I think that the point in here, I mean, there are languages that are 
that are forcing you to do things, uh, you know, intentionally, you know, like by forcing that using a typing system or by the, uh, the structures that, that, that you need to use. You need to use things intentionally. And that forces people to, to understand that, to, to not use it incorrectly. <laughs> that's, that's good. But of course, one thing is that it makes, um, makes it very much harder to start with those, those, those solutions. Right, um, right. Is it good or is it bad? You can discuss on that. But the, the, the second thing is that it makes that extremely unreadable. And that's my biggest problem with, with, with Eric's Java. I, mean, like I can use it, I can understand it, but it's, it's, it takes me much, much more time. And uh, if you take a student um, and make him or her read Eric's Java, it's very likely, <laughs> sorry, that, 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 that does not make any sense. If you make that person read uh, code using, uh, using coroutines, it um, it probably might uh, have some question marks, but it will generally be quite clear of, of of what's the meaning of the program. Yep, yep, yeah. I mean, it's 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 so true. I was thinking about um, when I started using Next.js, um, which is this JavaScript Node.js kind of front end back end uh, hybrid uh, tool. Yeah, I found it a very opinionated, and so I struggled a lot because it would say, "Oh, you can't do this, you can't do that." Um, but then what I found was that when I was done, um, you know, initially you want to say like, oh, how can I sort of hack this to make, get around this limitation? But then after you going to, to Stack Overflow and other sites and finding out, oh, no, actually you can design the same thing you want in this other way. And that's sort of what the intent is, kind of puts you on the right course. But you're right, you, you are sort of fighting it the whole way until you reach your transcendence there. And so... And so the uh, the having it extremely open ended allows people to get started right away. So it's it's, it's a real double edged sword. Um, but yeah, I found Kotlin to be very approachable, and um, and so now I think if I did want to release my my photos app, I would probably have to read your book and uh, and rewrite a bunch of it. But at least you know getting that first version kind of can give you that sort of dopamine, that adrenaline, you know, that you need to to feel satisfied and then make the the better version. Great. Thank you. Cool. Thank you so much, Marcin. This was amazing. Um, really deep dive. I mean, I can, you know, we can tell that you are clearly an expert in this language, in this area, and it's been a real honor having you on the show. Um, everyone should check out Marcin's books. We're going to post all the links in the notes. Um, he also has workshops. You can go to uh, kt.academy and see what sort of uh, workshops are available there. And he's also available on Twitter, twitter.com slash Marcin uh, Moskawa. So uh, for the spelling, definitely check the, the show notes. I get this all the time where people put an H in my last name and all of that. So so definitely check the show notes, click the link a lot, a lot easier than trying to spell either of our, of our names. It was a, a real pleasure. And uh, I look forward to kind of staying connected and seeing what, what the latest is with Colin. Sure, great. I will be happy to appear here again. Thank you for the invitation and hope to see you again. Cool. Thanks, everybody. And everyone, thank you for donating and uh, supporting the show on Patreon. We really appreciate it. Um, it is kind of crazy economic times. Um, we take a whole hour for us to talk about that. <laughs> but uh, it is kind of crazy times. Every time I look at the news, it's a little wild. And so I know it's, it's, it's tough out there. I really appreciate everyone's support for, um, um, for the podcast. 
Um, we you know put all of that money back into trying to get more uh, you know kids and 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 young adults on uh, on programming throwdown and learning about it. And um, thanks everyone for writing emails. We get so many emails from folks who. Um, you know, maybe they started listening 10 years ago and now they're in the industry. It's pretty uh, spectacular. So so keep sending those emails. It's a real treasure every time we, uh, Patrick and I get one of those. So everybody, uh, we will see you in a couple of weeks. Music by Eric Barndoller. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.